This is episode 30 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, I talk about the incredible, unbelievable life of Samuel Spencer Baldwin. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective, and this is episode number 30. And on today's episode, uh, we have a very interesting uh, subject. Somebody that I thought was going to take about uh, 10 minutes to talk about, and boy, did I uncover a lot of information on this fellow. So I'm going to get to that very quickly. But first, I want to mention the 8th European Magic History Conference, which is uh, taking place on August 22nd through the 25th, 2019 in Vienna, Austria. So it's uh, this coming weekend and it's put on by Magic Christian and his team. And I just found out about it. They have a website. It's emhc2019.com. And they've got an incredible lineup of European speakers and and talks on magic history. So I really, if you're um, able to attend, I sure hope you can. It sounds like it's going to be a great event, and I wish my friend Magic Christian all the success in the world on that. I just wanted to give that a quick plug. And now let's get to today's feature. Um, In a previous podcast, actually the previous podcast, I talked about the great Raymond and how he had once been given the moniker, the Mark Twain of magic. But in all truth, the subject of today's podcast fits that title better because he actually resembles Mark Twain. And truth be told, he seems to have patterned his style after Mark Twain. From the book, The Secrets of Mahatma Land Revealed, this is the introduction by Dr. Frank Baldwin. It goes like this. His talk is redolent of the humor characteristic of Mark Twain and Artemis Ward and keeps his audience in a simmer of merriment while his peculiar performance adds a flavor of deep mystery to the proceedings. He was born Samuel Spencer Baldwin, January 21st, 1848 in Cincinnati, Ohio. In Samuel's own words, we find this piece from the Magical Bulletin, June 1917. As to data... I was born at a very early age, so long ago that I cannot swear if it was I who was born or some other chap, but call it me. I think you get a kind of a hint there of how his humor was similar to that of Mark Twain's. His interest in magic seems to have started at a very young age, according to a piece written in his own book, The Secrets of Mahatma Land Revealed. As a young boy, he attempted to create his own magic trick by causing an egg and a potato to change places. His method was to cut (laughs) two holes in the kitchen table, and this allowed for a younger friend to exchange the objects while underneath the table. This rare feat of magic resulted in a firm whipping from his mother, who then threw out the ruined table and threw out the ruined friend. But the article also mentions that as a youth, he spent all his spare money on books on magic, books like The Magician's Own Book and The Boy's Book of Magic. Now, it's possible the story of the kitchen table is merely a fable, but the fact that they mention magic books is a good sign that Samuel was interested in magic at a young age. David Price's book, The Pictorial History of Conjuring in the Theater, has some biographical information. The book states that Baldwin was a medical student and was studying theology and then 
the Civil War interrupted his studies. Now, the Civil War started in 1861, and Baldwin would have been 13 at the start of the war. I did find out that he enlisted at 16, though he claimed he was 17 at the time. But even at 16, it seems awfully young to be a medical student. Now, we do know he joined the Army on January 23, 1864, and was made a private in the Ohio 83rd Infantry Regiment. That is factual. In the March 1924 mum, Houdini writes... During the Civil War, Baldwin had a narrow escape from being hanged as a spy. He told me that the noose was already around his neck. Having lost his papers of identification, he was helpless. But by a miracle, the commanding officer came in possession of them just in time to save his neck. Baldwin's regiment, the Ohio 83rd, was instrumental in the siege of Vicksburg, but this actually happened prior to Baldwin's enlistment. He was discharged from the military on December 12, 1865. No doubt he was no longer needed as the war had ended a few months earlier. The price book says that after the Civil War, he went to New Orleans and began his performances. Though this is not exactly accurate. Let me explain. Several periodicals say that he became interested in magic by seeing the Davenport brothers. And as I stated earlier, it's clear he had a previous interest in magic. Again, referring to his book, The Secrets of Mahatma Land, he mentions seeing the Davenports sometime after 1864. Now, we know he was in the military in 1864, so he either saw them in 1864, and then after he got out of the military, he went and followed them around or it wasn't until after 1865 that he saw the Davenports. What was so intriguing to him that he had to follow them around? Well, these Davenport brothers, they created an effect known as the Spirit Cabinet, which helped push the spiritualism craze along in the mid-1800s. Spiritualism was first started by two young girls, Margaret and Kate Fox. They could apparently communicate with spirits who would then communicate back to them by rapping on the floor or knocking on the floor. They were quickly a sensation. Near the same time, the Davenports from New York began giving demonstrations of their abilities. They would be placed inside a very large wooden cabinet that was raised up off the floor by two sawhorses. And when I say they were placed inside the cabinet, actually they would be tied inside the cabinet. Between them, there was a small stool, and on this stool were placed bells and tambourines and other objects with which to demonstrate that the spirits could actually pick these things up and make noise with them. It was clearly not the Davenports because they were tied, or so we were led to believe. By Baldwin's own account, the things he saw the Davenports do seemed real. He was captivated. He kept going back night after night. Keep in mind, he was, he was probably around 17 when he was seeing all this. Clearly very impressionable, but likely due to his previous knowledge of magic, he began to wonder, well, if the things he was seeing could actually be done by non-supernatural means. In other words, could they be faked? After much trial and error, he eventually got to the point where he was able to duplicate the entire show that the Davenports presented. He asked friends to watch his performance and then later took them to see the Davenport brothers and they all agreed his demonstrations were equal to, and in some cases, better than those presented by the famous brothers. With the craze of spiritualism sweeping the country and even the globe, it became easy to find a seance to attend. Baldwin next had his sights on a medium named Charles Foster. 
He began to attend seance after seance to try to figure out the effects. No small feat when it was costing him $5 each time he attended. I guess they hadn't heard of uh, the frequent buyer discounts back then. One of Foster's big effects was called blood writing. This involved showing his arm to be free of any sort of markings, and then he would place his arm underneath the table. And moments later, the medium would withdraw his arm, and there would be pink markings all over the medium's arm, usually spelling out a word or a message. It was a remarkable effect and one that Baldwin soon adopted. As he attended seance after seance by many different mediums, he began to see patterns and methods and early exhibitions of mentalism, or what they called back then clairvoyance. And this led him to develop a show of his own, an anti-spiritualism show that he called Seance Obscure. Now, if we go back to the statement in Price's book, after the Civil War, he went to New Orleans and began his performances. The earliest record I could find are newspaper accounts in 1873 of Baldwin performing, frankly, performing all over the country. So you've got an eight-year gap between the end of the Civil War and the time we see Baldwin actually performing. And naturally, he could have been performing before 1873, but... You'd think there'd be some record of it, and so far I haven't found any, but eight years is enough time to finish medical school, and, and that's, of course, me only speculating, as there's no information that points to that, well, except for this. In the March 1899 issue of Mahatma, with S.S. Baldwin on the cover, it says, Mr. Baldwin is a physician by profession, being a graduate of Bellevue from this city. So... If he was a real doctor, I can't find any proof that he actually practiced medicine. It's all very sketchy. Was he a real doctor or did he just adopt the title in the same way he adopted the title professor? I don't know. I'm going to go with he adopted the title. In 1874, Samuel married Julia Clara Mansfield, who became part of his show. She's listed in advertisements for a while as J. Clara Mansfield Medium. Eventually, they would change her name in the show to Clara Baldwin. They are doing the large Davenport cabinet as the closer of their show, and a host of other material as well. One item prominently featured in the show was the effect he learned by watching Charles Foster, the names of dead acquaintances of members of the audience will appear upon my naked arm in letters of blood. They also did the clairvoyant act that Samuel Baldwin invented. He called it the Rosicrucian Somnomancy. He took something that gypsy fortune tellers did for centuries and was able to come up with methods to make it work in a theatrical setting. And this act was stolen from him by Anna Eva Fay, who made a big career out of it, and frankly was taken by every other would-be mentalist of the day. The Baldwins had other tests like slate writing, spirit phenomenon, and more in their show to make a remarkable evening of mystery entertainment. However, in February of 1881, the St. Paul Globe newspaper reports that Clara is dangerously ill. She would pass away in May of 1881. She was 33 when she died. The following year, in 1882, he brought Caroline Kate Russell into the show. She would take the spot that Clara had, and eventually in 1892, she would become Mrs. Baldwin. By then, her performing name had already been changed to Kitty Baldwin. 
She and her husband traveled the globe numerous times with their act. Australia was a popular destination for them, and they were extremely popular there. According to David Price's book, Baldwin Toward the Globe in 1878, 1879, 1884 through 1889, and 1891 through 94. So Clara, Clara Baldwin, was with the show in the 78-79 world tour, and Kitty was with the show in 1885 through 1894. During their world tour in 1888, Baldwin altered his show slightly to a larger affair. He called it the Butterfly Coterie, and it featured his act, a unique routine presented by his wife Kitty under her name, Kate Russell, as well as uh, other comedy acts and music. He continued this version of the show even when he returned to the United States. By the way, it was on one of these world tours that he started using the moniker the White Mahatma. He also changed his first name from Samuel to Samri in 1894. David Price's book says that Baldwin claimed the name White Mahatma was bestowed upon him by actual Indian Mahatmas while on tour. Another source I read said that it was the Indian newspapers that started referring to him as the White Mahatma. The word Mahatma in theosophy circles means a person said to have supernatural powers. This is somewhat ironic given the fact that Baldwin never claimed supernatural powers. He often billed himself as a magician, but like many mentalists, he left the final decision up to the audience. There's an unusual story that took place in San Bernardino, California in the 1890s at one of Baldwin's spirit exposure shows. It seems there was a family there by the name of Sawyer who had been divided by spiritualism. The mother and children were believers, but the father was a staunch disbeliever in talking to the spirits. When word came of this exposure show, Mr. Sawyer made sure to attend, along with his wife and children. He was relatively quiet for the first portion of the program, but eventually a broad smile overtook him, and soon he was laughing out loud. His assumption that spiritualism was fakery, well, his assumptions were confirmed. And he turned to his son and said, Now you and your mother should finally see the light. His son turned to him and said, Mother and I will have to surrender our belief in spirits. The old man Sawyer was overcome with joy. He basically had his family restored to him. He was so thrilled, so excited, he stood up to leave the room and he reached the exit door and dropped dead on the spot. Physicians attended to him, but with no luck, he was pronounced dead. This is from a newspaper clipping I found in Baldwin's scrapbook. According to an article in the Levensworth Standard newspaper, October 30th, 1894, someone attempted to kill Baldwin by shooting him in the head. The article says that Baldwin was walking alone when a man stepped out from the shadows, fired, and then vanished down an alley. The gun was so close to his head there were powder marks on his hat. Fortunately, the bullet did not actually hit Samory Baldwin. Then we have this unbelievable story from the Wilkes-Barre Times Leader, March 18, 1895. The headline reads, Heaps of Trouble for the White Mahatmas. One arrest follows another for Samory Baldwin, and there came near not being a performance. Samory and company were appearing at the Grand Opera House when Ambrose Higgins of the Postal Telegraph Company had a warrant sent out for the arrest of Samory Baldwin on the charge of slander. Baldwin was served with the criminal warrant at his hotel on the charge of pretending for gain or money to predict future events by incantations, 
necromancy, and other means of the Dark Ages. They appeared before court and posted a bail of $500, promising to appear in court at a later date. From there, the Baldwins went to the opera house. Upon arrival, another constable was waiting for them to hand them an arrest warrant. But this one included only Samry, not his wife, so she was allowed to go into the theater, while Samry was hauled off again. Through much wrangling and arguing by his lawyer, Samry was again allowed to post bail for this second offense and was off to the theater, arriving there at 9 p.m. He had barely made it to the stage to address the audience when a third officer approached the stage to hand Baldwin a third arrest warrant. This time, Baldwin's attorney was on hand. Off the stage, they began to deliberate as other lawyers were present. It was clear that this was some sort of scheme to prevent Baldwin from performing at all and was cooked up by several influential people in the area who were offended by Samory Baldwin's predictions and performances. Thankfully, they were allowed to go on. Baldwin would have three court appearances that following week, but I honestly don't know what the final outcome was. I, I imagine they were probably all thrown out. In the late 1890s, Baldwin, who amassed a sizable fortune over his performing career, decided to retire to the U.S. and get into the mercantile business. In a February 1902 edition of the Philadelphia Times newspaper, I found an ad for S.S. Baldwin and Company, and they're selling Baldwin's all-steel, gold-finished couch beds. The business was located on Lancaster Avenue in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I really don't know why he chose this, but the results were disastrous. He lost most of his fortune, and only a few years later, around 1904, he was forced to return to the road performing. And if I might add, if he truly had a background in medicine, you'd think now would be the ideal time to start using that as your backup profession, but it doesn't appear to be the case, so... Once again, I think that whole doctor thing was a farce. Now, this next item is revealing. It's from the Topeka State Journal, December 1st, 1903. In the article, it talks about a woman who claimed her name was Lucille Jones, who was the wife of Professor Jones, a piano tuner, who was arrested for telling fortunes without a license. She claimed she was not telling fortunes, that she was simply a medium, and they allowed her to go. And then things get strange. The officers receive a letter from Samory Baldwin stating his wife has run off with someone named Dr. Jones and was likely in their city. The officers send out an arrest warrant for Jones and Mrs. Baldwin on the charge of illegal cohabitation. They were both arrested and posted bail. Mrs. Baldwin then promptly split town, leaving Dr. Jones locked up. So by this, I must gather, the Baldwins were separated in 1903. Sometime in 1904, Samory Baldwin added a couple women to his show. One of them was Shadow Baldwin. He referred to her as his daughter. However, in a February 23, 1904 issue of the Pittston Gazette, it is revealed that her real name is Miss Gertrude Blanche Goulet. It would seem there was no relation. I've also seen the name Blanche Baldwin come up. And I think she is, uh, she and Shadow are one in the same. And now there is a slight possibility that it could be a daughter of his and she was married. And, you know, so that's why the last name Goulet, I don't know. But it just kind of looks like 
maybe wasn't his daughter. In 1906, Kitty Baldwin filed for divorce, claiming he had hired two younger women, one to be his niece, the other his daughter. She believed he was dating them. Shadow Baldwin was the one he referred to as his daughter. Knowing what had gone on now with Kitty Baldwin and the earlier mentioned Dr. Jones, it sure sheds a different light on this whole situation. And what became of Kitty Baldwin? Well, she attempted to do the mind-reading act solo, and not with a lot of success. She contacted Carl Germain and offered to tour with him, but he declined. She did go out on her own, but with limited success. However, that was not the end of Kitty Baldwin. She went into acting, and in 1914 made a movie called The Banker's Daughter. The next year, she made a movie called Overnight. Finally, her last film was Magda in 1917. She would eventually die at the age of 81 on June 27, 1934. The years between 1907 and 1916 are somewhat silent for Samory Baldwin. There is the occasional article of him giving a lecture. I also found a newspaper ad where he was trying to sell real estate in Kansas. In 1916, he buys a photography studio in Penaluma, California. However, in 1917, he closed the studio and relocated to San Francisco. In 1920, Thurston invites Baldwin to tour with him. Baldwin was now 72 years old. He had brought with him a scrapbook of his whole entire life on the road, along with a trunk of incredible treasures that he had amassed during his world tours. His intention was to give these as a gift to Thurston, if they got along. However, he and Howard Thurston did not get along, and in 1921, Baldwin quit while in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It just so happened at the same time, Silent Mora came by the hotel to visit with Baldwin, and according to an article in the Linking Ring magazine, Mora arrived at 8 p.m., and Baldwin was in bed and appeared very tired. Silent Mora did not intend to stay long. His intention was to try and bring Thurston and Baldwin back together, but to Baldwin, their differences could not be resolved. He pointed out the trunk with all the treasures that were to be given to Thurston, had they gotten along, but now they would remain with him. Now, what kind of treasures, you might ask? Beautiful things presented to Baldwin by the greatest people on earth, President U.S. Grant, King George V, Bismarck, Kaiser Frederick, the Emperor of Japan, Emperor Franz Joseph, Tsar Nicholas, Sun Yat-sen, the Shah of Persia, the Maharaja of East India, and many more. In the article, it says there was an interesting story with each item as Baldwin let me look and examine each of them. The most impressive was a snuff box from Kaiser Frederick, the most beautiful I had ever seen. It was a small tortoise shell box with a lid, also of the same material, but this lid had a rock crystal center with a beveled edge. Under this, and carved in solid gold, was a picture of pine trees and a wild boar running towards a hunter. This snuff box was the one item I remembered vividly. At this point, Mora realized it was late, like 10 p.m., and he apologized for taking up so much of Baldwin's time. Baldwin speaks up and thanks him greatly for the visit, as it was just the diversion he needed. And then he added, oh, and it's not 10 p.m., it's 4 a.m. 
The final twist to the story are the last months of Samory Baldwin's life when he begins speaking and attending the Spiritualist Church in San Francisco. After all these years of debunking this very type of thing, now he was attending a Spiritualist Church and talking on their behalf. Samory Baldwin, the white Mahatma, world traveler, creator of the Q&A Act, died on March 10, 1924. Houdini wrote a memoriam to his friend in the March 24th edition of Mum Magazine. In part, it says, Samri S. Baldwin, the original white Mahatma, has passed away. I have known him for many years. At one time during his career, he was the sensation of every town in the world favored by his visitation. He made several tours of the globe with his own company featuring original clairvoyant work and amassed a comfortable fortune. He was a consummate showman. I have witnessed a performance by him wherein he would sit on a three-legged stool near the footlights and entertain an audience for an hour and a half without a moment's cessation. For a man with such a sensational career, Samory S. Baldwin has passed on with a peaceful ending. He is buried in the Presidio Cemetery in San Francisco. The scrapbook that was once promised to Thurston was eventually given to Houdini by Shadow Baldwin, and now resides in the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas in Austin. The scrapbook is available to view online. The trunk, filled with valuables from Samory Baldwin. Uh, well, that one, we don't really know what happened to that. Uh, I'd say it's likely that its contents were distributed without any knowledge of their origin or value. That, my friends, is the life story of Samuel Spencer Baldwin. I hope you enjoyed that. Let me remind you that there is a magic detective contest going on right now. I uh, mentioned it last week, but the question is this. What was the real name of the great Raymond's second wife? Not her stage name, her real name. Send your answers to info at carnegiemagic.com and please put contest in the subject heading. Also include your name with your answer. I'll draw a winner at the end of August and notify you if you won. That, my friends, is going to be it for this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Until next time, have a great week. 